Support for Redeeming Eli comes from the Buck P. Mitchell Foundation, efficiently avoiding tax since 1974. Making the perfect candle isn't easy. There is a lot to consider. The delicate balance of wick size, wax recipe, shape, and a certain something else, a je ne sais quoi, an X-factor, something that can't be easily defined but is absolutely required to make a truly outstanding candle. The average 8-inch candle will burn for around 6 hours, 6.5 if you're lucky, but a candle made in the Welsh village of Clanquig of exactly the same size will burn for 15 hours. As a result, Clanquig has been a byword for quality candles for hundreds of years. On the bio-tapestry, you can clearly see a soldier being soothed by the light of a Clanquig candle as he comes to terms with having his leg chopped off by a Norman. It was Clanquig candles that brought light to Charles Darwin's drawing room as he stayed up late into the night looking at beaks. Guy Fawkes had planned to use a candle from Clanquig to light the fuse to detonate the gunpowder below Parliament in the 5th of November gunpowder plot. However, as we all know, he was caught and the candle was shoved up his ass by one of his torturers. I know all this because last year I was contacted by a resident of Clanquig, former slaughterhouse owner Eli Roberts, who asked me to save his reputation. You've got to remember one thing, right? People are essentially bastards. Wherever you go, everyone hates everyone else, right? Life is a struggle. Life is a is, is dog eat dog, right? I will eat the dog. I have eaten a dog. I will kill a dog, then eat it, right? I will kill a dog by eating it. From the Beef and Dairy Network, this is Redeeming Eli, part one. It's early evening, and I'm sitting down with a couple of rich beefers to read today's post. At the top of the pile is a large brown envelope, spattered with what looks like blood. I open the envelope, and a waft of cheap aftershave mixed with the sweet, sweet smell of raw meat meets my nostrils. I pull out the contents. A letter from Eli Roberts. I'd interviewed Eli on the Beef and Dairy Network podcast on a number of occasions. He first appeared on the show to talk about health and safety standards at his slaughterhouse. You lose a finger, guess what? Next shift, you're thinking, right, come on now, don't lose any more fingers. The, bro- the bloke there, right, David's name is, the bloke with four fingers is the most focused bloke in the place. Because he knows, right, one slip, he got no fingers. Then he spoke to me about his new mosquito theme park. Eli's world of mosquito mayhem. We get out of the car... And within, within a matter of seconds, you'll start getting the full experience. Different types of mosquito and strains of mosquito in different parts of mosquito mayhem. Before finally explaining his current incarnation, a religious leader running his own cult. I am, I am, I am a chosen person. I have a special duty to fulfil my prophecy, which is to, uh, to help people in this life and help them on the way to the next, uh, like I did for so many animals over the years. The handwriting was childlike but the content of what was written was anything but. He says that my interviews with him on the podcast have given a false impression of his personality and that he wants me to make a programme about him that will show the world, in his words, the real Eli. The next morning I take the first train to Swansea in South Wales, where I hire a car and make the hour-long drive up to Clankeague. To get there you simply drive up the Taru Valley and keep going until the road stops. 
Eli's home, which doubles as the headquarters of his cult, the Church of Eli, stands alone on a hillside, looking down across the valley and the village below. The building is a single-storey rectangular concrete compound, unassuming, apart from the 150-foot-high brass statue of Eli hitting a bull in the face with a cricket bat. I ring the doorbell, and when he opens the door, Eli seems uncharacteristically jittery and nervous and is keen to start recording. He begins by telling me that the way he's been portrayed in previous podcasts is, in his opinion, unfair. Well, I came across as some sort of, uh, you know, uncaring and uh, uh, a lunatic with no empathy, and you know, um, I, you know, if you cut me, I bleed. So you're saying you're, you're just human like everyone else? I'm a human being, you know. I got feelings, I got, you know, I got emotions. Um, I, I think that, like everyone else, I'm, I'm like a Russian doll, you know. You, you, you take apart the, the outside. You know this 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 tough exterior, which has had to be tough. You know, and under there, there's a, there's a soft, soft, gentle, gentle, smaller doll, and then you go inside that doll, and there's another hard doll again. You know, it was a bit of a nutter, and then inside that doll, though, is another nice one. You know, and, they go, and oh, that's human nature. And I mean, we're all we're all we're all Russian dolls. Eli, of course, is right. We are all Russian dolls, but Eli is more Russian than I'd ever imagined. My my early life was very 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 happy. I was, I was a small child, growing up in in uh, in the Ukraine area of what was then the uh, the Soviet Union. My father was a was a wonderful wonderful man, Nikolai. Very much a go getter. Very much a man who didn't see problems, just saw solutions. You know, and he was um, involved in the uh, the purges uh, with Stalin. When you say he was involved in the purges, on which end? Oh, in the Soviet end. Yeah, he was. He went into the Ukraine with. Uh, he was good friends with Nikita Khrushchev. They grew up in a small in a small village together. They were both metal workers. Yeah, he killed thousands, but I mean, oh, oh, I was responsible for the death of thousands, certainly. But um, for a reason, you know, people, people, just like other people's grandfathers went to war, then, you know, my father and his father before him were, were involved in a class struggle. You've got to, you, people forget that, you know. So, uh, yes, he killed thousands. But look at the end result. You know, and the old man was very much favoured. He was one of the elite. You know, so as, as, a, as a small boy, I grew up in, you know, we'd have a dasher down the country there and, you know, we'd go killing deers and stags and wolves and bears. Fantastic times. And, uh, of course, then, part of political politics, as it was like in, in, in the so- former Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev became persona non grata, following the sort of Cuban Missile Crisis and various other other things, you know, and uh, my dad was uh, had to leave the country. Nikolai and his family defected to the West, eventually making it to Britain, where they were given new identities and a small house in Clankeague. Eli was just eight years old. We, we went, went from a life of absolute luxury to, you know, a very hard, hard existence. So did people in Wales, did they know about your father's background? They called him Russian Nicky. Some, some people called him the Tsar. But, but uh, a bear of a man. You know, a, a, a huge, huge bear of a man, a big big, lovely Stalin-esque moustache. I can see him now, like, as, as a kid, you know. I I always had that uh, protective big Russian arm on my shoulders, and it was just nice to have Dad there and to see the locals' eyes when he'd walk into the shop, you know, the, or the, uh, to see that. It's fear, really, isn't it? I mean, I people talk about respect, but respect at any level is essentially fear, I think. I think if someone fears you, then... You know, by definition, they respect you. When did your father die? I don't really know because I, I uh, he went out in the woods when I was about uh, 
16, 17 years of age. Never saw him again. I mean, you hear the stories and that, and uh, they said the woods are haunted after that. Old Russian Nicky's out there. Oh, don't, oh, don't go to the woods tonight because old Russian Nicky lives out there and, you know, he, he's covered in his own excrement and he eats whatever he can find. But, um, I mean, he saw a lot of stuff, Dad, you know, he, he saw the world. And I think that in the end, he just thought, I, I'm, I'm going to walk away from all this now. It was when his father disappeared into the woods that Eli, now the man of the house, had to make ends meet, which is when he started his slaughter business. I mean, the thing was starting off there, you know, I was, I was a man of few, uh, few financial means. So I'd keep the, keep the overheads low as essential, you know, when I started the business. And where I managed to undercut a lot of the competition in, in the area was I would, I would need no machinery. So people would bring me their, their, their animals, their livestock or their pets to kill, and I would do it with my bare hands, you know. And, I'd, and I'd, the saving you make there on, on conveyor belts and electric bolts and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the tanks of, of, of acid and all, the, all the, the modern sort of accoutrements of a slaughterhouse, you don't, essentially, that you don't need that. I mean, that, that is all window dressing, you know. All you really need is a strong pair of hands and a can-do attitude, and that's what I had. So people would bring me their pigs and their cows horses there's nothing you can do with with an electric bolt you know that you can't do with your bare hands and one with a rock or a piece of glass or a river you know dying's dying you phone me up you like yeah what's the matter oh it's old jeb old jeb the horse what's up with him he's lame okay where is he can he come up here no he's got a bad leg i'll come to you don't worry and i would go down there now if it was say i want a horse go down there put like a bin bag over my top and just whack him in the temple with a with a half a brick. That's fine, you know. Bang, gone. And that's from those from those inauspicious beginnings, you know, very humble beginnings. I moved on, but I mean, uh, in, I think there was a purer, if anything, in those days or the early days. Of, I think you always look back on on uh, through rose tinted spectacles, and you in the early days of stuff and how things were simpler back then. But I mean, it really was. I mean, I'd go round up. I didn't even have a car. I'd jog, you know, if you're six seven miles away, jog over there. You know, whatever, chuck your dog in the river. You know, or just trial and error. I mean, the the, the joy of of not having uh, any overheads, particularly, was I I, I and, and that that youth and enthusiasm was like it. Uh, I had, I had the joy of experimentation and working out the way. Like so, for instance, uh, things like ferrets and stoats. You know, they're, they're quite small. You can just hold them by the tail and smack them against the wall. They will die almost immediately. Uh, things like a tortoise. Literally a tough nut to crack a tortoise, right? Flip it over first of all, it's on the soft bit, and then just if you just drive a tractor over it, but don't don't do it when it's shell up because it, it's just like a speed ramp, you know. It's, it's, it'll be oblivious to it. So uh, I don't know. I killed a dolphin once on holiday. The key with that is, I mean, they're very slippery. Um, I got a beer bottle and just chucked it in the air hole and just hammered it in there. And it's a very similar technique with a whale. I, I killed a couple of whales. Just need a bigger bottle or. I, I killed a sperm whale once, and I just I just used them. Um, well, essentially, it was like a vase. A lot of birds, especially the larger birds, like a, for instance, an albatross. I once killed an albatross by throwing a hammer at it, like a like a like a modern day Thor. It was a, a lump hammer, seven pound hammer, which they use for like taking propellers off ships and stuff. And I caught it right in the back of the head, and that I mean the head literally exploded. It was a wonderful thing to see. But I mean, uh, anything living can be killed. Simple as that. You know, and it's a lot. Oftentimes, it was things that you could have done yourself if you had if you had the model compass to 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 to, to want to do that. You know, or or the, the fortitude to do it. You know, there's there's no reason why you you couldn't kill your own pig physically. 
you know, it's easy enough. I mean, pigs are thick as you like as well. So I would just like, if you had like a handful of apples or something, you would, a pig would follow you upstairs, no problem. And then just put the apples by the windowsill and kick him out. He's going to be dead. But people won't do it. You know, they, they, they've got some sort of moral problem with it. Same, the same, the same people, mind, the same hypocrites will happily have a, like a bacon roll. Won't they? You've seen them. So you're saying there's an there's a inbuilt hypocrisy with someone who will eat bacon but won't kick a pig out the window? Of course, it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? Animals get born, they die. Guess what, sunshine? Get at the top of the food chain. You can do the killing, but you're not, do you? You're two rungs down, so shut up and get on with it. Get up those bloody stairs and get out that window. Because believe me, if they were on top of the food chain, we wouldn't be here for two seconds, mate. Don't even worry about that. You think if pigs rule it? Yeah, I tell you what, then we wake up with like some sort of plan of the apes' future, right? Oh, what's happened? The pigs are ruling the place. The, the, these staff buggers, these people from universities, oh, pigs are intelligent, right? And we wake up one day and pigs are running the show, right? What do they can do to us? You think a pig would kick you out the window? Well, within two seconds. The thing is, in all these dispatches, is it's hand-to-hand combat. It's 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 the it's the, it's the pure way of doing things. It's gladiatorial. You know, I, I think a gun's an easy way out. You know, it's about having that respect for the animal's soul, really. So you you think that kicking a pig out of a window rather mm. than killing it with a gun, yeah, is more respectful to the pig. I think so, yeah. And I think I think I think that if the pig could speak, you know, he'd agree with you. I think when he, if he saw me in that window, what was he doing there? Oh, look out! Here it comes, bang! And, you know, when he as he's fall, I can imagine him falling down there, looking up at the window, with a probably got some bit of apple there. I'm not chewing a bit of apple. Thinking, oh, you little bugger, Eli! You got me with the old apple by the window trick there, didn't you? Bang! What would you say are the other things that make a, a person a good person? Well, there's no such thing as a good person, is there? But good things within a person would be things like physical strength, mental strength, um, a capacity to do wrong for the right reasons. I mean, a lot of people say that my dad was a bad man, right? Oh, Russian Nicky, dad, uh, um, because he was involved in those purges back in the day, you know. But uh, and yes, on one side of it, you'd look at it and you'd look at it and say, right? And modern historians might look at it and say, oh, he's a bad man, wasn't he? Why is he a bad man? Then my dad. He killed thousands in the purges. And I say, right, okay, who did he kill? A lot of those people are nameless, faceless, right? Forgotten by history. Who's to say, right, that amongst that population there wouldn't have been the next Hitler or the next Pol Pot, right? What did Hitler kill? Eight million people? Pol Pot killed five million people, right? What's that, 13 million? Who's to say my dad, right, by wiping out one village hasn't saved 13 million lives. Think of it that way, isn't it? Because you don't know, see? That's the thing. You don't know. But you also don't know that, that, that maybe they weren't for a future death. Yeah, maybe, 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 whatever. Right? What does that mean? Or oh, maybe they weren't despots. Maybe they wouldn't have grown up to commit genocide. Yeah, maybe they wouldn't have. And maybe they would have. He could have saved billions of lives, my dad, by killing thousands. That's called altruism. Following through this line of argument and this logic, mm. you could argue that it would be best to kill everyone on Earth because someone might turn out to be a, a, a despot, a genocidal despot. Yeah, right, right enough. And if you think that, and you, you wholeheartedly believe it in your, in your soul, then, you know, you have the courage of convictions. So you're saying that the best way to stop genocide is to kill everyone on Earth? It's obvious, isn't it? No more genocide. No more murder. No more crime. No more hardship. 
you've taken care of it because you've got the courage of your convictions. You've got the moral fortitude to do what needed to be done. To kill everyone in the world. To keep everybody safe. If I went out without you and, and talked to the people of the village here and I said, do you think Eli Roberts is a good person? What, well, which people are you going to ask? I don't know. I'll just go Could out. Could you give me like a list of names you're asking? Well, I, I don't know yet. I'll just go out in the street and speak to people in the local shops. and. Right, but we'll, I mean, let me talk to the village first, maybe. I can have like a town meeting and we'll... I'll, no, I'd, I'd... I can put some basic rules down, like, you know what I mean? No, I, guidelines. I was talking hypothetically, really. All right, okay. Because I, I quite happily get a meeting, like... I don't think we'd need to In the to next hour it. or two, just no, get I everyone in and... I don't think we'd need a meeting. Tell them what's what, like, you know? No, I, I, I could just go and talk to them. I'll do it, man. Yeah, but I don't... We don't need that to happen. But let's just say... People I, say, oh, Eli's a murderous thug. Just because they know it'll make... It'll make, you know, it'll get airtime. When really they're thinking, he's not a bad stick, all Eli, is he? You're saying that if I was to go and speak to the villagers, someone might say, for example, that you are a murderous thug. Yeah, they're just attention seekers, isn't they? And if they do say that, I would like to know who, who said it. But you think they're they're not being fair, then? No, they're just doing it for attention, aren't they? Really? Well, maybe I'll go and talk to them and they'll have positive things to say about you. What do you mean, maybe? I mean, well, you just it seemed like you thought they might sort of have negative things to well, say. Well, no, I'm saying if they have negative things to say about me, then it's probably that's not true. They're doing it because that's what you want to hear. So going back to my, my original question, if I if I were to ask them if, if they thought you were a good person... Right, and they said, who are you going to ask? Yeah, but let's let's imagine I'm asking a, a random stranger. Well, he's not going to know me, is he? No, a random stranger to me, not to you, someone who just lives in the village. Who? Where do you live? I don't know. Right, go on. If I was to ask this hypothetical person, right, if they think you're a good person, right, what do you think they'd say? They'd say yes if they, go, if they know what's good for them. On the drive down the side of the valley from Eli's compound, I pass huge piles of debris, old wax, discarded wicks and the like, dumped on the hillside, a constant reminder of the village's candle-making heritage. Not that one needs reminding, when a village has no future, everything is the past. For almost 200 years, Klankig was a wonderful place to live. The candle factories employed over 90% of the local people until the late 1980s when, facing pressure from cheaper candle makers in India and China and following a number of strikes, the British-made candle market collapsed almost overnight. Several derelict candle factories still stand, casting long shadows across the village. Even today, despite a massive clean-up effort in the 90s, a thin film of candle wax covers almost every surface, including the roads, which as a result are some of the most dangerous in Europe. And the village itself is, well, it's depressing. After the candle factories, the only other employment was the Robert Slaughterhouse, which shut down last year after a litany of health and safety failures. Hlankeeg is a village on its arse. I park the car outside a boarded-up candle showroom and have a walk around. Walking through the village, the locals seem friendly, some saying a cheerful hello or trying to sell me homemade candles. But when I mention the name Eli Roberts, they change. They seem to shrink like a scared animal, and they won't say another word. What's your relationship like with the people of the village? I think the, the, it's uh, my relationship with the village is very much like the bee's relationship to the, to the, to the flower, in as much as... They provide the pollen, which is labour, and I provide the honey, which is a means to survive, you know. 
Uh, so it's, it's symbiotic, you know. It's like it's like the like those little creatures that live on whales, you know, eat the barnacles and stuff. Like a parasite. That's the one. A parasite. Yeah. The only person willing to have his words put on record says he will only do so on the condition that his voice is replaced by that of an actor. No one around here will talk to you. They're all afraid of what Eli would do. He knows everything. Somehow, he's everywhere at once. It's terrible. In retrospect, we probably should have used a a different actor. As my train home pulls out of a Swansea station, I know something is going on. Why had no one wanted to talk to me about Eli? More after this. Are you looking for your next great hire but short on time? You just need the right tools. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 job boards with just one click. Then they actively look for the most qualified candidates and invite them to apply. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And right now, network members can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash beef. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash beef. Slash beef. Slash beef. In a world where meat was banned, only one man could stand up to the state. Get off me. There's no point struggling, slash beef. We've got you this time. Get these punks off me. I'm sorry, Mr. Beef. I'm not going to risk letting you go now. I'm not slash beef. Oh, I think you are. I'm not. Then why are you wearing a cape on which it is printed the words slash beef? I'm, I'm just a... I'm just a fan of his. You'll never catch slash beef. Is that so? Well, if you're not slash beef, who are you then? I'm slash beef. Oh, oh no. ZipRecruiter.com slash beef. If no one living in the village would talk to me, maybe someone who used to live there would. After weeks of research, my team found some people willing to talk. My name is Gwentlian Lewis and I'm a photographer. Gwentlian Lewis is an award-winning photographer. At her home in Bethesda in North Wales, she shows me the photos she took when she moved to Clankeag in the late 80s. But I think, yes, this is around the time... Ah, here we are, yes. So this... This is actually the first picture I took. So I originally heard about the village because obviously it was a, a big news story at the time um, with the, the candle making industry coming to an end. And, you know, that was massive. Even up in North Wales, you know, it, it, there was a, it was a big story. So I was very interested in the kind of the post-industrial um, imagery. But I thought it would be really interesting to capture that as it was happening. So I went down. I, I did a trip for for a weekend to see what what it was like, and and you drive over over the the hills and you arrive at this this valley and in the middle of all this nature there's these gigantic buildings these these huge um, structures and all the the debris of the candle making and the wax dripping everywhere and if it got very hot in the summer then it would get on your clothes you know it was. Um, it was quite difficult working environment, but um, after that first weekend, I, I, I came away and I was so inspired and I just knew th- that that was where I needed to be. Gwentlian found a small cottage to rent, moved to Clankeag and started taking pictures. And straight away, it was clear that something was awry. So it was very important to me that I was also getting pictures of the people that were going through 
this crisis point as well as the the debris and the industry and the you know so I I started doing portraits and um you know it took a while for people to trust me but they they would come and and eventually I was doing portraits of quite a few people but something very strange was happening because as a photographer you do a series you know you you gradually get to know somebody you'll do three or four sittings but I'd do the first sitting it would go okay but none of the pictures were really usable and I'd plan for a second sitting and they wouldn't turn up it was happening all the time and and I started trying to to well, look into it because I thought a few times, okay, maybe they, they're uncomfortable. They've decided not to come again for the pictures, but it was happening every time. So that was quite worrying. So I was going around their houses, knocking, and it was like they had disappeared into thin air. Family members that I would ask about them would not say a word about them. Um, and that was worrying. And I remember one day it's, I, I met with Father Jonathan, who's the local vicar, And that was when he told me all about Eli. And I remember he said that day, you don't know what you're dealing with. You should get out while you can. Well, to me, that sounded like a challenge. So I was very interested by that. And I thought, right, I'm going to get to the bottom of this and who this Eli man is and where all the people are going. You know, they were disappearing. This was, you know, this was far more interesting than the than the candle-making industry coming to an end. That was peanuts, you know. This was disappearing people. Gwenethlian made it her mission to try and find and photograph Eli, snooping around outside the slaughterhouse. But for many weeks, she didn't see him. But then, one evening, she finally got her shot. It was late afternoon. It was winter, so it's quite dark. And he came out of the slaughterhouse. And he was wearing his overalls, blood, I mean, everywhere. Um, He's a big man. And he was carrying something that was wriggling a lot. And I realised it was a cat. And he was carrying it by its tail. And he threw it against the wall with such force. And that that day I I did get some pictures. Gwentlian shows me copies of the photographs. It's dark and Eli, covered in blood, is hurling the cat at the wall. In his eyes is a look that is hard to describe. Inhuman. Demonic. Shortly after this incident, Gwendolyn got a package through her letterbox. It was quite thick, and it was a series of Polaroid pictures. And they were all of me. And it became apparent that that he knew I was following him. And uh, a lot of pictures of me, um, some of them very intimate, um, which was very distressing. And the the final one was, um, I don't really know how to describe it, but it was a picture of uh, some kind of, it was like a Frankenstein monster made of all these different animal body pieces. And and the, the cat that I saw that day was the head, you know, the crushed skull, the head, and, and, and pig's trotters and a cow's tail. It was the most horrendous thing I've ever seen. And I knew then that I was in grave danger and I, I needed to leave. Um, and I, I have never been back. Hi, I'm Jeff Pugh and uh, used to work with uh, Eli and I've been living away now for 15 years. Jeff worked at the Robert Slaughterhouse as a young man. He now lives in London, where he is a successful font namer. Sitting in his plush London flat, Jeff tells me about the ways Eli made it hard to leave the village. 
it it was psychological um for most people and then if his psychological control didn't work then it would often be physical i mean sometimes he i remember seeing him stood by the uh village sign stopping one couple from leaving yeah he was short of people he wanted to work at the slaughterhouse and um actually put down you know those uh stingers they call them they had like he had um he had police stingers and he put a stinger across the road and the car was going you know no more than 25 miles per hour but it, it hit the stingers and swerved out of control there was a baby on the back seat i remember it and uh, it crashed into a ditch no one was hurt but uh he just said out and walked them back and um yeah that was it he had, had them working the next day when he left school, Jeff had assumed that he'd go to work in the candle factories. My dad had, my granddad had. But on the day of his final school exam, Luminox collapsed. That was followed the next week by United Candles and Chandler Tech, and then the biggest candle factory, Tallowmasters. He had no choice but to try and find work at the Roberts Slaughterhouse. He immediately hated the work. The stifling heat, the danger, the compulsory after-work offal parties. At the end of his second week, he handed in his resignation. So as far as I was concerned, I'd resigned. That was me done. I was out. And um, But I had the weekend and it was a relief. And then I woke up the, on Monday morning. It was about quarter past six in the morning. And I heard this banging on the door. Bang, 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 bang. Like that. Initially, I just thought school kids or, you know, milkmen like uh, needing payment or whatever. So I was waiting for my mum to, to get up. Bang, 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 like that. And then I remembered my mum was away and it was only, only me in the house. Bang, 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 bang. And I was just about to get up. And then he just burst through the door. He just barged through the door, came steaming up the stairs, burst into my room, no words, picked me out of bed. In fact, all he said was, slaughterhouse, now. So he just grabbed me by the scruff and uh, pushed me down, pushed me down the stairs. Not literally, I, I ran down the stairs, but he was behind me. He had his hand, hand on my back like that. Got to the bottom of the stairs. You know, I'm in my pants like I'm in my friends. He just pointed to my brogues by the front door. I put him on and he marched me to work in a pair of wifrons and a, and a pair of brogues. No words. That was it. Jeff worked at the slaughterhouse for a further two years before he felt that enough was enough and asked to resign again, hoping that his years of service would count for something. I went into his office at the end of the day. I sat down and I said, Eli, I'm shaking now. I said, Eli, uh, I want to resign. I'm out. He said, um, he said, okay. He said, okay. He said, thanks for your work. Thanks for your time. Best of luck to you. So Monday morning, there I am, uh, half asleep, thinking, oh, new life, here we come thinking about going away and all that. It was brilliant. And uh, bang, 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 bang. <gasps> Same noise, front door. <gasps> so I'm like, I know what that is. So I jumped out of bed, put my own brogues on, got a pair of shorts on, got a T-shirt on minimum because I knew I was coming. Ran down the stairs, got to the bottom of the stairs, opened the front door. He was stood there, Eli, like that. He just wild, like a, it was like a Hollywood film. He was like lit. It was like lit, and I, I turned, and I saw what was lighting him. My car was on fire, and he was just standing, looking at me, and he just screamed at me, and like slowly, like this, like slaughterhouse, pointing uh, where the slaughterhouse was. 
and I knew what he meant. He meant I had to go and work in a slaughterhouse. Dude, that was it. That was it then, back working. Another two years. Another two years passed, and Jeff knew that he had to go. But this time, he wasn't going to tell Eli, and he had a plan. So it was what, one Christmas, you know what it is. They, uh, so Santa Claus comes around, and it's the local charity, like, and they have a sleigh. They have a sleigh, and it's not really a sleigh, you know, it's just an old farmer's cart that they've stuck a sleigh on the side, and there's Santa sitting in the back. And it's just a trailer being pulled around by a 4x4, basically, and uh, one, of the, one of the farmer's boys pulls it around. Anyway, they do the whole valley music, you know, all the weather outside is frightful, all of that. Like, all the way through the valley, it goes visiting all the, all the villages, all the kids come out, right? So that was it. Anyway, it arrives at the village. I know this is my opportunity. I thought, this is it. It's obvious. This is, this is my way out. I'm not proud of what I did. Um... I waited for, you know, it's the end. We're basically, we're top of the valley. So they've come all the way up, all the villages. He's done it all now, and they've been giving him brandy and sherry and everything, right? And he's, you know, he's having a wait. That's half the reason he does it. He was slammed. But so he's, you know, he's busting for the, he needs to go to the toilet, like. So he gets, he got out of his sleigh. Everyone's chatting. All the kids are happy. He went round um, the back of the community centre. And that was it. I ran round. Bam! I just punched Santa square in the face. Down he went. Beard off, hat off, wellies on, red stuff on, back in a sleigh. No problem at all, I'm there waving. Like that, pretending to be, you know, pissed. That was it, it was gone, gone. I do feel bad about uh, what happened to the guy who was who was Santa Claus. Yeah, of course I do, because, um, you know, he's been in the slaughterhouse now for... Uh, Five or six years, I think. Yeah, and he was just, I mean, he was a nice, he was a primary school teacher. Yeah, I feel bad. I, I hope he's okay. At this point, I was getting a lot of phone calls from Eli, and I wasn't taking any of them. I don't know why, it just didn't feel right. He'd usually call early in the evening, and I would just put my phone on silent and put it in a drawer. But the more I ignored the calls, the more he would make, and soon he was leaving long, rambling messages on my aunt's phone late at night. He had found out somehow that I was talking to people about him, and he was angry, and he sounded out of control. I'm doing again, right? I'm a businessman, simple as that, a philanthropist. And you are making a very, 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 very bad enemy, my friend. Right? There'll be no bloody injunctions, there'll be no county courts, there'll be no CCJs, there'll be a bone in knife, and a can-do attitude. Now cut it out. You sniveling little rat. You sniveling little rat. I love your asses. I love your fucking asses. Hi, my name is Jodie Branch and I am a journalist. We struggled to find anyone else who had lived in Clankeague, but my team finds Jodie Branch, a journalist currently working for the New York Times, who in the early 2000s was working for the South Wales Evening Post. It was her job to cover the news from a number of small towns and villages in the Valleys area, including Clankeague. It was very obvious to me straight away that this village had a different vibe. Uh, very peculiar. Honestly, very fishy. I felt a little bit uncomfortable wherever I went. I did not feel welcome there. And famously, you get a good welcome in the valleys, but not in this particular valley. In this particular valley, I felt like I was treated with a lot of suspicion and 
the name Eli Roberts kept coming up. So I looked into it. I'm a journalist and you sniff something out, you've got to find where that smell is coming from. Jody set about trying to get an interview with Eli to get to the bottom of what was going on. Basically asked around, asked a few places, and it was, it was him that came to me in the end. So he knew you were in the village? Yeah, yeah. Turns out a little bit of investigation uh, shook the hornet out of the nest, as it were. I was interested to know how the interview had gone. It was one of the strangest experiences of my life. I felt like he was, he was, he was trying to, I don't know, he's trying to trap me in some way. I felt like he'd read one of those pickup artist books and was trying to seduce me, but Se- not sexually. To, no, to seduce my my intellect. Now I I have um, met him and interviewed him on a number of occasions, and he is, I think, rather charming. In, in some ways. Yes, no, no, it, I, I wasn't, um, it wasn't unpleasant. It was, it was, just, it was confusing more than anything else. I felt like everything he said kind of, in the moment that he said it, made sense. And then immediately after, made absolutely no sense whatsoever. That's kind of my experience as well. It, it, the reason I, I, I'm enjoying, relishing the opportunity to talk to you is that as a journalist, he is one of the most, um, I can't put a word in it, uh, mercurial, enigmatic figures I've ever, I've ever had to interview. And, oh, yes. And and the thing I'm struggling with as a journalist, and I wonder if you felt this way, is that I'm, I'm never feeling like I'm actually getting anywhere near the, the nub of it. Can I give you a piece of advice, journalist to journalist? By all means. Do not believe a single word that comes out of the mouth of Eli Roberts. None of it is reliable. And I honestly, I am not sure he's ever said a single truthful thing. Now, it's interesting you say that because I've spoken to him on a number of occasions and he has said some things which do seem far-fetched. But to me, it never seems as if he is lying. I think part of it is that I don't know if he is lying truly in the sense that he is telling an untruth knowingly, or if he really believes these things have happened. Jodie was saying all these things that I'd been thinking. It was as if she had access to the back of my mind, which she doesn't, hopefully. Suppose he's he's told you all about his Russian father? Yes, he's spoken to me about that. Sounds pretty... Kind of brutal and exciting, doesn't it? Russian Nicky. Russian Nicky, yeah. Yeah. Who had to... That's uh, on his life. Did, did he tell you all that? Yep. Did, did he tell you he was, he was born there? Yeah. I mean, it, I thought it was interesting. It, it seemed to po- give me some pointers as to where his brutality maybe comes from. Yeah, except that it's all like a lie. It's all a complete facade. Not a single bit of it is true. I investigated it, deep investigation, and the reality is that Eli's father was a mild-mannered Welsh accountant. So there's no truth at all in in the idea that his father, and, and indeed that he was born in Russia? Not a shred of truth. And I, I don't know. He talks about it with such conviction that I don't know if maybe 
he created this character of Russian Nikki to justify his own brutality. Give himself, you know, a, a backstory that suits his deeds now. So do you think that Eli believes that he was born in Russia? I honestly don't know. I don't know. It's possible because he is very convincing and I it's completely possible he's convinced himself. Then Jody tells me something even more shocking. Oh, and he probably told you that his dad just disappeared one day. Never heard from him again. He told me that his dad had walked into the woods. Yeah, well, that's, that is almost true. From what I've found out, he walked his dad into the woods. And as far as all the evidence suggests, he murdered him. And honestly, we don't even know why. His own dad. And I was uh, obviously confused and upset to discover that he'd been lying about his dad. But what was much, much more distressing was what I discovered about his uh, mother, who he had told me had died. Now, the one person you, you haven't mentioned so far is your your mother. What are you trying to say? Well, I'm just saying that you know, your father's obviously... Why are you a... coming here now? I've invited you to my house. What about ma'am? Well, you told me about your father and, and how right. important he was right. in your upbringing. Right. And, and right. there's also... Right. With every father is a, is a mother. Yeah, well done. So I just wondered whether you wanted to tell us about... Why? Just because it, it helps fill in the, the backstory that you... Absolutely. Who's it helping? Me. Is it fair to say you're, you're uncomfortable talking about your mother? No. My mother brought me into this world. Right? That's what she did. Is, is that is that all you're willing yeah. to? Yeah. We we can move on if you'd prefer. Yes, I think that's a, probably for the best for you. Okay. Well, maybe you could uh, start by telling me about the the. Period. No one talks about Mama to me. And she had not died. And in fact, it's very dis disturbing. It's disturbing to talk, it's disturbing to think about. His mother had not died. He is in fact married to his mother. So, hang on. Marjorie, his wife? Yes. Marjorie, his wife, is in actual fact his birth mother who he forced into marriage and I I believe from from what the records that I found and from interviews that I've done with people who were absolutely terrified to talk to me 
forced an entire village to attend the wedding and strong-armed a vicar into completing the ceremony. Is that legal? I don't think it is, no, I don't. I don't think it is. The, the things I've found out about Eli since talking to him last have been deeply shocking to me. And I guess the question I have is whether you think it's advisable or safe for me to try and talk to him again and, and talk to him about some of these things. I I don't know. Because you just ne- you never know. Is he going to be the charming Eli who will, you'll be off on a carousel of fantasy with him and you'll be like, yes, I want to be on this carousel. What a beautiful ride. But it can all turn. And you can be tossed off that carousel into the woods and murdered. I mean, I think the only safe thing is to steer as clear as possible because... I just don't think you can do any of these things, tell these lies with such conviction, if you're not a 100% psychopath. I think he's a murderous psychopath. You you can't, you know, have an entire village under your whim, which they are. They, They all, they bow to him like he's some sort of queen bee in a hive. And... It's chilling. Honestly, it's chilling. Look at the way that he's manipulated these simple village people. It's like the village of the damned, but with people who used to make candles for a living. You fucking scandalous from among You you lie, you pile of lies, and you're out there believing everyone's wearing bridges because they got one hand missing or a couple of legs missing or not something like that because a mosquito bite you because all you guys thought you were all in fucking not sunshine. Right, I built this business up in my bare hands over 40 years. I lost me you my own family on my own hands because of this. And what are you doing to me now? You're trying to rule me with your fucking ashes, sunshine. Don't you worry about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, kill it, Superfield. I'll take the fucking bony knife for you. And yeah, I'll bone you down to the bone. And then I'll check me in the grinder. And I'll do whatever I need to do. I'll do whatever I need to do to prove you that I'm not some sort of nutcase. I'm not a madman. I'm just a faithless man. I love you and I Do you understand me? They won't recognize you. Your family wouldn't recognize the best. You'd be the pie. Oh, you'd be. Oh, oh you wouldn't be the best one in the pie either. I can tell you that for nothing. Yeah. You're not going to do this to me. You're going to do this to me. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, they're all... Yeah, you're all brave. You're all brave. You're all so brave. You're all so brave when you... When you're in the father's house, will you? Oh, that... Yeah, that's awesome, men. Bring a boy. I can tell you that. I mean, maybe the truth is... That... Maybe there's an Eli Roberts in every single one of us. Maybe Eli a balancing force in the universe. Something necessary. All that I know is that I never, ever want to encounter Eli Roberts ever again in my life. When Jodie filed her story at the South Wales Evening Post, her copy was rejected, and a week later, she was sacked. I started to think maybe it was time to give in. Maybe this whole thing had been a very, very bad idea. Maybe I shouldn't have even opened the letter from Eli. 
And I really gave proper consideration to the idea that I would stop making the program. And then I heard something which meant that there's no way I could put this story down. This is the news at 10 o'clock. A 62-year-old man has been arrested in connection with the death of a 35-year-old male on London's Oxford Street this morning. Bystanders were left shocked as the man was killed after an altercation in the middle of the road. The seemingly unprovoked attack was carried out with a seven-pound lump hammer, the sort you might use to take a propeller off a ship or kill an albatross. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel has bought a new towel. Just even tell him, it's all fault. I haven't, well, I haven't done it. I haven't done it. You, you made me do it, right? You didn't mean to do it, and I have done it. And I have done it. Oh, no. Redeeming Eli is produced by the Beef and Dairy Network. Thanks to Mike Bubbins, Hal Lublin, Malangech Dolmer, Chris Corcoran, Nadia Kamal, and Tom Crowley. Also, huge thanks to Rodri Viney for providing the music, and also thanks to my dad for playing the piano. Hey everyone, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, here to tell you about Story Break, a writer's room podcast where every week we, the Hollywood geniuses behind Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Thrill as we weave the tragic tale of Jar Jar, a Star Wars story. We're going to double down on everything that made the prequels great. Jar Jar, (laughs) Trade Federation, (laughs) politics. Gasp as we assemble a pantheon of heroes for the Kellogg Cinematic Universe. We could get rid of Snap, Crackle, Pop. I wouldn't even miss them. You're crazy. They die in the second act. Oh, come on! <laughs> and join us as we make fun of Matt as he struggles to name a single Beyonce song. Well, yeah, put a finger on it. Sure, she wants to be Beyonce. Put a um, finger on it. Beyonce's <laughs> famous song. Will we break the story? Or will the story break us? Find out by joining us in the writer's room every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, folks. I'm writer and performer Dave Holmes, and I host International Waters where we pair a team of comedians in L.A. against a team of comedians in London in a pop culture trivia battle royale. Comedians like Josie Long. I worry that it makes me seem like I'm 80 years old, but I hurt my knee, and it is just on the mend, and I can't tell you how delightful that feels. If I want to walk down some stairs, I just go for it now. (laughs) Michaela Watkins. We have a country where, like, our leaders actually deny global warming. <laughs> so we are going to have more beachfront property than any other nation. I mean, it's going to shrink our country in half, but it's okay, but that's just more yeah. beach. And many more. Join us every other week on International Waters with me, Dave Holmes. Find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.